0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. This is a particularly exciting episode for me. I'll share my interview with Paula Isarac, the Argentinian author of one of the hottest novels of 2021. Mona. Pola and I get to talking about the failure of the U.S. university system to live up to its influence, especially when it comes to making the lives of black and brown people better. We discuss whether writers are terrible people or are they simply unfit for any other vocation. Pola introduces me to me-search, the self-centered prancing of authors at literary conferences, and she helps me to see the folly of imagining writing as a solitary affair, instead imagining the work of the writer as a constant convening of friends. Pola is as remarkable as her fiction, and I know you'll enjoy getting to know her. But this is also a special episode because it marks an expansion of Burned by Books into a larger market of listeners. As of this week, Burned by Books will be joining the New Books Network, an academic aggregator of podcasts that take up a vast array of subjects and which introduce their listeners to new books arranged by category rather than specific show. This doesn't change how my regular listeners will encounter the podcast. You'll still find us on iTunes, Spotter, Stitcher, and everywhere else, including BurnBuyBooks.com. The only noticeable change will be that you'll hear a couple of commercials, which will act to support the mission of the New Books Network, namely, to educate broadly. Otherwise, this partnership will be a seamless continuation of the kinds of interviews you've come to enjoy, only with more opportunities to listen. I would encourage you to find some new shows at newbooksnetwork.com, and you might start with one of my favorites, Recall This Book, where hosts John Plotz, professor of English at Brandeis University, and his colleague in anthropology, Elizabeth Ferry, discuss books from the past that cast a sideways light on today's world. In particular, I want to thank Marshall Poe for welcoming us to his network as an academic partner, and as always, I want to thank my regular listeners for supporting Burned by Books. Now let's get to my interview with Pola ola Isarak. What a pleasure to welcome Pola ola Isarak to the show. Pola is originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and she did her graduate work at Stanford. She currently lives in Barcelona, Spain. Pola's first novel, Savage Theories, was a bestseller in Argentina and went on to be nominated for the Best Translated Book Award. In 2010, Pola was named one of Granta's Best Young Spanish Novelists. She has two other works of fiction, Dark Constellations, and most recently, Mona, which is what brings her here today. Mona, the eponymous character of Pola's novel, arrives at the San Francisco airport having only a vague idea of what happened to her the previous night. She knows that she's on her way to Northern Sweden, where she is a nominee for a major European literary prize. And as the trip begins, she realizes that she has deep bruises on her neck and body. She ignores frantic messages asking her whereabouts and proceeds across the world in an opiated daze. The literary festival in Sweden is everything and nothing that she expected. She dodges the unwanted attentions of sleazy men and watches an international soccer game while seeking other kinds of entanglements. But the discovery of a badly mangled animal corpse outside her residence and the growing sense that she is being stalked by something not quite human begins to unsettle her sense of reality and as well the novel's own hold on realism as its genre." Mona cuts like a knife through the self-congratulating worldliness of academia represented by an incestuous cadre of elite writers to reveal a microcosm of the planet's vanities and prejudices. It is a novel that startles with its bluntness and gorgeous vulgarity, moving fluidly between the fake pleasantries of the literary conference scene and moments of abject horror with cloudy memories of assault and a looming animal presence growing in the woods. Mona frightens with its fantastic monsters, but it is the real monsters that haunt the reader, the men that prowl and take what they want, prizes, attention, and women's bodies. Writing in Pola's conception is a dangerous profession, but Mona, like Pola, believes in the power of that act. The result is a novel that possesses you, worms its way into your imagination, and leaves you changed. Welcome to the show, Pola.
1: Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. for
1: this lovely introduction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Mona is really equal parts comedy and horror, but it is also a near-perfect description of the absurdity of academic and literary conferences. Why did these sort of conferences, and particularly the literary festival, become the setting for your novel?
1: Um, Well, I am interested in in writing comedies, mostly, because I think that it is through comedies that we can kind of harness or kind of move deeper into the dark. It makes it... Mm. Um, lighter and more fun and also like more shocking when you really go down into the dark and so I find that a place you know like a literary conference or the university is it's mostly where people that um, really prize themselves you know on their intelligence and on all their minds and on you know on the powerfulness of of their spirit is really where narcissism takes hold Mm. and and it's something that i find very um fascinating and a lot of fun to watch in i mean in fact and it kind of like the level just comes out like that because i am in these places and i'm just watching these people prance and i love that I, i i'm fascinated by them and and just imagining, you know, their inner workings of like what is going on and why they're actually doing what they do is, is just the thing that sets, you know, a novel in motion. Uh, and you have to survive around these people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that that description of prancing is really perfect the sort of preening and prancing around is is really something to see and you've had experience yourself both in in graduate school where you do these things but also winning literary awards and traveling around to these places and and do you think it's do you think it's something particular about those kinds of gatherings that brings out people's worst qualities or is it just a chance to See people's regular vanities on display.
1: No, I think people do get uh, intoxicated with themselves because there is something in these gatherings that kind of like uh, forces you to be as pure as you can be. It's like it's the, like this condition of like sometimes it's not really research when you do like graduate school. It's like research you are like being into this like selfless, I mean, not, not selfless, like the contrary of selfless, it's like the most uh, overly self uh, thing you could do. Um, and and it's also, also, of course, a way of survival, but it's also, you know, what people are expecting from you. So this kind of like feels a whole dynamic. Also, I should say that I, I dropped out of Stanford, but in my, uh, but it was interesting because when I was in San Francisco and, and I had to live as an immigrant there, I kind of realized that I could like, instead of like really going to the university, I much rather like kind of like write a novel about like what <laughs> that situation would be like. <laughs> and so that's, that's kind of like also,
0: um,
1: um, I don't know, another part of the muse that, um, that, that took hold in this case.
0: I'm going to steal me-search from you and use that in these uh, <laughs> these conferences because it, it may be the most perfect description of this.
1: It's actually, it's a technical term. I mean, is it?
0: Really? It is. Oh, I haven't heard it before. <laughs> oh, no,
1: no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But, oh, yeah, it's okay. like, <laughs> but it's so specific and it's exactly what people do. But yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Oh, I love it. You could have fooled me. I would have imagined that there were <laughs> many journal articles written about it. <laughs> So, them. writers come off quite badly in Mona. They are the vain and privileged and intoxicated and sex crazed. Is there something about the writing world today that feels rotten to you? Or is it the privilege of being able to spend time in imaginary worlds that makes the writers of your novel generally terrible?
1: Um, I mean, I I like my characters human and, and deadly. I mean, I I mean, I I don't I don't read and I don't write just to see like nice people <laughs> around. <laughs> I think that would be so boring. I mean, mm, it's just not uh, and it's not my world. And and probably if like they're like such nice people, I would really really start like. Observing and observing until the, until I find the awfulness. And then I'm like, oh, yes, there you are. You're so mm. beautiful. Now I'm interested in you. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, she's escaping, on I mean, and, and I think the other people are kind of escaping as well. Mm. And this also, I don't know, fuels this, this situation of, of being... Uh, People, I mean, animals in the lurch, or you know, beings in the lurch, and and this when when people kind of like it, you know, are more unbridled, you know, of what they're supposed to be. Uh, well, well, yeah, they, they encounter, uh, you know, this this darkness coming 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 into them and coming from them, and and you kind of like have to cope with that. When I see privileged people that act, you know, in a vain, in a and privileged way, I, I also feel like I'm in the zoo, because they have also been trained, you know, to do that, the thing that you're doing. It's like, this choreography, it's not like it's making them, like, less than other people. It's just like what they have been taught. Hmm. So I I try to have a humane point of view also <laughs> to mm-hmm. people that are that are annoyingly privileged, I guess.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, well, Mona's kind of her her moments of terribleness, perhaps that's the wrong word, but are part of a. A darkness that's very powerful, it's very wounded, it's very um it's growing inside of her in a way that can't be contained. Did you always have a sense that this character would be someone kind of coming apart at the seams, filled with a with a darkness that can't be can't be held, but needs to be expressed in its most powerful forms?
1: Well I'm I'm actually glad that you see her that way because I was very surprised when I found that that she was she was really all this deep that I haven't really that I had desired but I, that I but I wasn't sure if I could like really you know make make her happen she uh I mean she's looking for pleasure in places that uh, it's like uh, like an uncharted territory in a way because sometimes you really don't know where pleasure is. And so that's really what also, I think, uh, gets her into trouble because she's looking for a kind of uh, an unconscious experience of pleasure. Like, then I realized that when she was appearing, like in all these situations, um, that she was really looking into this, trying to to stop existing in a way. And she connects that with pleasure.
0: I I find it very clever and and wonderfully devious that you set this writers' conference in Sweden, in part because Scandinavia is treated by many as though it's a utopia free from cultural and political vulgarities. But you've drawn back that veil. The Swedish literary establishment in the world of Mona is as essentialist and racist as the rest of Anglo-Europe. Did you set it in Sweden partly to challenge certain commonplace assumptions?
1: I I set it in Sweden um, because I wanted a Nordic setting. Um, I wanted it to be like uh, kind of outside. I mean, kind of in the brink where civilization ends, like you know, the North Pole where that is hmm. over. But at the same time, you know, it's not like um <laughs> i mean yeah it's 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 kind of the end of the world um but to me like i mean the the ideology is is american or is what i what i observed in in america i find it kind of i mean that it's more like a, as a cultural export that europeans have imported very uh um very intensely uh lately because it's like how do people cope, or how do white people cope with having been evil, right? That seems to be the question. So I think for now, what they are doing is importing this ideology that that to me is problematic because um, it entails that if you are a person of color and if you are invited to this environment as a person of color, in a way what people are expecting is you to, show how grateful you are to the society that is hosting you and and so in a way like the audience i mean you're lip serve you lip servicing you know the the audience's fantasy of their goodness just by hearing you and it's kind of like played in this way uh that you're not really invited to kind of like to talk about literature or like or like in a way it's like literature remains a thing that is done you know by the ian mckee ones of the world by by the actual like <laughs> white american you know or american or english whatever um guys and and yeah and 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 you're kind of there to to bring out the quota of kind of cute and picturesque and 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 kind of like the feel good factor you know that that oh we're such a nice society you know that we're we're even like listening to these like older people like talk the little things and what were their childhoods about I don't know there's something so uh, incredibly patronizing about all I mean most of these reunions um, that it was very shocking for me to to I mean when I when I saw them and it was also shocking to me when I realized that I that I was supposed to also kind of like classify myself as a color person because I had never classified myself as a color person before and it, this was something like that only happened to me in the states but when I cross you know the you know the border I'm not a color person anymore <laughs> mm-hmm. so but I cross again and I'm back to be a color person so it's like oh there's something here like uh, um, so it's like I learned to be racist I had to develop my racist or my racial view, because I, I didn't have it before. I was, I was kind of taught on the liberal sense that, you know, we're, we're equal and it doesn't really matter like how dark or not dark you are because what matters are your ideas and et cetera. And I understand that this is, a, that this is now viewed as, a, as an essentially um, something very naive, um, but also, I'm not finding how this this change of situation has improved the lives of the actual color people that is supposed to serve. Uh-huh. Because yes. these color people are not accessing education, <laughs> are not accessing health. I mean, they're like they're more ghettoized. So in a way, it's like you're in a situation where you live in a society where people, these people, are ghettoized. And you, because you're in the university, are supposed to be ghettoize yourself as well. and and but to be happy about it also, because mm. you have to be you know, like brown and proud. like what is that?' I mean, it's like, I mean, I don't know there are so many colors that that I can connect myself with. like maybe I'm lilac. I don't know. maybe I mean, it's just uh, it feels so materialistic and and i I couldn't help but seeing it racist, you know because I I, I, I learned to, I mean I came to it as an adult. maybe if I you know if I was born into it I didn't I wouldn't see it that way. But to me I mean I, I still cannot you know cannot not see it as a racist point of view. like a, you know like, like uh, you know, in Oz that you have to wear the glasses. well the, the glasses are racist mm. <laughs> and are supposed to just classify people in terms of what their colors are. So to me, when people tell me that I'm color, I'm just I'm, a person is telling me you're not like me, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and so I'm I'm I want you to act in a particular way because I don't um, like explain myself your existence without that. Like what what is what is it like to be this other thing that you are that is not me? I don't know. Um,
0: this is something you. Uh very powerfully parody in Mona. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read a little bit from a section that acts as a, as a parallel and a, and a kind of wonderful use of literary parody to endorse what you've just been saying. Would you read that little section for us?
1: Yes. Wait a minute. I bring the book. Mona had arrived at Stanford not long after the waves she made with her debut novel Toss Her onto the beach of a certain impetuous prestige, and at a time when being a woman of color in the Vademecum of American racism, began to come for a chic sort of cultural capital. American universities shared certain essential values with historic zoos, where diversity was a mark of attraction and distinction. By playing the part of an over-educated Latina adrift in Trump's America, Mona experienced academic captivity as a sort of serene freedom. North American universities asked all doctoral candidates upon application to reveal their ethnicity. Mona had clicked Hispanic, indigenous, and typed Inca in the box underneath. (laughs) This was Silicon Valley, right? She might as well try to lean in. Anchoring her identity to a brutal and exquisite empire about which so little was known would provide her with an ideal costume for the university's tribal masquerade. She'd been born in Peru, but claiming indigenous ancestry in any other context would have been outrageous, much like calling herself a person of color any time prior to her arrival in the United States. There was a niche sort of glamor to it, like being a rare specimen of an endangered species, as though her mysterious DNA were a tiara encrusted with rare pearls, and the universities, each a massive arc navigating the great flood of the United States, heroically fulfilling their mission to save two of each beast. Strictly speaking, Mona preferred to think of herself as more of a mermaid, that cross between the fantastic and the inexplicable whose true habitat was beneath the waterline among the drowned. She couldn't help feeling like an outsider observer, a mermaid tourist. Anyway, the whole charade was just a bizarre exercise in academic bureaucracy. And besides that, the selection of a racial subtype for a Hispanic was obligatory. Mona's identitarian fantasy was quite well received on campus, it related to her research topic, and offered her the opportunity to advance her career merely by being herself, as much herself as humanly possible. Later, she realized it would have been even more advantageous to add on some kind of physical disability, slight but evident defect, but nobody's perfect.
0: Thank you so much. Do you when you think of, in particular, American institutions of higher education, do you imagine them as being a primary force to the masquerade, this sort of tribal masquerade that you describe that hides the actual material damage to um, brown and black bodies in the country by tokenizing people with these um, tickable boxes?
1: I, I like the verb tokenize, yes, I, I would love, I mean, I am incredibly grateful to American universities, namely Stanford and Harvard, that have allowed me to do research uh, in their magnificent campuses and libraries. There's really nothing like that. I, I feel like the power of the American academia is so great that should be i mean it's like it's underdeveloped i mean it's so great that it that you know that it could have a you know a broader reach and and i and i'm sure that american universities could perhaps make changes towards changing the lives of those communities that they want to to make more visible to uh, to help access education and etc i think that would be the most wonderful thing <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. However, I, I am not sure if the way the current discussion takes place is, uh, is what really uh, gets to help these people. It seems as if we are just um, entering some sort of, well, the word in Spanish would be like galimatias. I'm thinking more of, you know, when, when rhetoric becomes even more and more Baroque and it's just looking at itself. And not looking at outside or at anything mm. else, at what are the actual, you know, effects in reality? Well, I think we are in that situation now. Mm. Uh, it seems uh, something that is incredibly solipsistic, and yet people kind of are. People outside of the university pay attention to what these universities say. I mean, it's like like the power of of knowledge of, of like these centers of knowledge are. Are listened to, are are our subjects of clickbaits. and so I think like that that power should be harnessed uh, in a different way, in a way that that uh, that changes the conversation, and not just that just I mean makes it on and on and on about things that just uh, I don't know that does not feel like uh, that they bring on any change.
0: A baroque <laughs> a baroqueness for its own pleasure without any
1: yes.
0: without any change behind it
1: yeah yeah I'm, i i'm trying to i i'm trying to find the, there's a medieval word that it's perfect for that but we well, will come back
0: <laughs> <laughs> so i'd like to talk about the monsters in mona the real and imagined ones the literary festival is full of a certain kind of monster men of entitlement and privilege who believe they're deserving of prizes and attention specifically Mona's attention, but also monsters of art who produce work that is made for being prized and nothing else. Are you worried for the literary culture more broadly? Is it too full of these different kinds of monsters?
1: No, I'm I'm not worried about the literary culture at all. And and I don't think that sometimes those monsters of art just make stuff for prices. I think that it's, I mean... That you kind of write because you need to, even even if you're not, um, even if you're like not the best writer, or even if you are a writer that is just seen as one of those guys that is just going after the prize. I, I think those people are also kind of charming in their way. That the only thing that they're fit to do is write, uh, <laughs> and like, what what can they do? You know, it's like. Uh, yeah, they, they're they're deprived of authenticity, or they're deprived of pathos, or or drama, or, or, <laughs> or charisma. But that's you know, what they do. Like, what do you do? Um, I don't know. There's something charming about them too. Um, I, I I I don't know. I think you. I mean, you write because you must. You have to. You you, you don't write, you feel bad. It's like you can't operate. You can't function. And and this is, it's what kind of makes life visible and, and understandable. And if you don't write, it's just you you can't see, you can't you can't eat. It's like <laughs> I I don't know. It's like you become the monster if you unless you write. Um,
0: Well, this leads me to another theory that I believe is within kind of Mona's estimation of art. There's before this apocalyptic fantasy turn, Mona tells Sven, one of the few decent people that she encounters and takes to bed, that, quote, art is marked by these moments when certain artists take a liking to each other. They get along, they become friends, something like love circulates between them. This way of getting along and making friends and forming groups is then what we call, after a few decades have gone by, an avant-garde, or a movement, or the boom, or whatever. Without that love, there would be no avant gardes It's a deeply humanistic ideal of writing, and then one that goes against certain commonplace assumptions for how literary movements take flight. Do you yourself follow this vision of literary community?
1: I absolutely believe in that I believe that uh, when when you write, and when you have friends that are uh, that are the perfect readers um, for the kind of thing that you're writing because that can mutate, of course, not not you cannot always have the same set of friends for the same set of books. Um, that that is you know the most um, I don't know enriching experience. i I believe that, yeah, that one writes also because one is surrounded by energy, because one is surrounded by characters that want to live in your book. Sometimes they can even do things just to be in your book. <laughs> and, and maybe they, I mean, you won't see those people again, but they're just doing, I mean, it's like you, you just create this bond, you could, because they they have made this impression on you um, that just has to get in the book and, and. And i and I and I really feel that uh, when when people are are together and are sharing and 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 are, you know sharing an obsession with literature, and this is what or, or with literature of one kind of of you know when the energy of admiring each other like gets ignited, uh, I think that's that that's I don't know that. That that's usually, I mean, if you if you look at this, the different avant-garde, like they all have that in common, of course, like they were like very nasty people in different places, etc. But you cannot you cannot avoid that, and 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 but regardless of that, like whether you your group of friends is not, you know. <laughs> I don't know the Bloomsbury Group, <laughs> and you're not friends with Virginia Woolf. Like we got, I mean, a <laughs> set of that. That yeah, those, those things can happen. It's 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 the kind of energy that that helps you to write, and I think it's uh, it's good to to try to find those people, or to try to find those um, microcosmos, or fuel them in different ways, or or uh, I don't know. It's like. You know, there are so many things that you have to do besides writing that involve, yeah, I mean, like besides breathing, etc. But like, there is like a fun aspect to things, just to being alive, and if you can do that with interesting people, that really adds to the, <laughs> that adds to the experience of your book, definitely. I, well, I I don't buy, you know, that whole, like, you know, leaving, uh, like, being completely isolated to write. I think you are so isolated just because you are a person, that you are not the rest of the people, that that's isolation enough.
0: Yes there's a there's a gravity to these movements that pull people back in even as they you know depart for other parts of their lives i'm thinking about you know the boom generation and how often you know different members of them were pulled together by this sort of the power of that collapsing supernova that was producing so much energy and and power at that time and the same for the bloomsbury group and and i guess we all can't know marquez or or virginia wolf but i love i really love this idea of of writing and community and an eschewing of the idea of isolation as the needed quality for writing i hope that it's i hope that it can be true for more people yeah
1: yeah it would be lovely
0: the going back to the idea of monsters and i just want to kind of give a warning to my listeners that if you don't want a a major spoiler, just skip ahead for this one question. And then, you know, I, I promise not to spoil anything for the other questions, but the monsters that ultimately spill out of the woods in Sweden are brought about by a horrible act of sexual violence that remains hidden from the reader until quite near the end of the novel. The revelation of this attack and its impact on Mona change the way we understand everything that has come before, including the difference between realism and fantasy. I wonder if you could talk about how the fantasy elements in the novel overtake the realistic narrative and become, in fact, more real, more tangible um, than the realism once the rape is revealed.
1: So Mona goes through different genres. Uh, it feels like at the beginning, it's a, like an auto fiction. It seems as if Mona is me, and so that's you know a genre on its own, and then it kind of moves in. It's like, and suddenly you're in this other genre like, is it a horror book, or like, what's going on? And I and I have the feeling that this kind of like, and, and then yes, until we, we get to, to the to to these other switches, right? You know, and more fantastical. I, I feel like this is kind of the way many times the perception of women. Uh, our works. Do. I mean, I feel like we are so trained in not not only just seeing what's going on, but also kind of like looking at yourself from an omnis- omniscient narrator point of view. You know that like you are also like looking at the way that, i mean like how you are perceived like how you are blending in or not like like is, is your your hair okay like it's like it's like <laughs> is it, is it acceptable your your knees it's like every exact detail of your appearance um in fact has a product you know in <laughs> this is the way <laughs> women actually live but like sephora um commercializes, uh, this specific, I mean, there are several brands, um, like this pen just for like five millimeters between like your brow and what it comes exactly below. (sighs) And so just for that, that tiny, tiny piece of, 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 of your skin, there is a product. And of course for everything else, of course, like tons of them. So, uh so this compartmentalized and and partialized granulated omniscient point of view is also in mona and 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 i feel like this always has like an element of fantasy because it's just so it's just flabbergasting it's just hallucinatory how can you have like all those things in your mind and this uh and so just this can have like this effect of like kind of the fantasy that is more real <laughs> than, mm-hmm. than the realism. I I kind of I needed it to to kind of switch genre to kind of move from from different um, fields or atmospheres to to really make it like uh, like a study of a character to, to kind of like really get get her feeling and and so yes it, it ends in this very dramatic <laughs> 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 uh, yeah explosive way I guess
0: <laughs> a fantasy primal scream that bursts from every <laughs> pore of, of <laughs> Mona's body out into the <laughs> landscape the 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 novel is wonderfully translated and i'm wondering whether you had a role or if you did how much in adam morris's translation
1: um well yes it's i'm so happy with how it turned out the translation work alan is fantastic we did work um a lot in it because like he what he mentioned is that he, he hadn't really worked with humor before
0: mm. so
1: it so was fascinating he, he really had to get her tone right because there's something kind of you know um i don't know if apathy is a word but like haughty about like you know this this woman dealing with ideas and philosophical ideas and etc but in order to make that kind of uh lovable and at the same time fun which is definitely like the spirit of the book in Spanish, like Adam really found I don't know his his mona. I love that he's incredibly self-effacing. So when I say to him, like, oh, I love how you made this. This is so perfect. He would say, like, oh, no, that's just, that's you. I mean, <laughs> I, mean yeah. I, I mean, I didn't do anything. I'm like, oh.
0: He's practicing the translator's invisibility.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. But at the same time, apparently, that's very controversial because, like, now I've like a lot of people are talking about the visibility of the translator but to him which I I think it's a very interesting idea <laughs> she says I think the translator becomes more visible when in fact disappears and if you compare the different translations and you see how incredibly different the style is then you're like wow this is a very visible translator <laughs> like the visibility yeah the visibility for him would not be in for example, I don't know, putting the name in the cover because to him, he, he says like, you know, it's like a design, uh, it's like a design decision. It's not an issue for the people that actually that are interested in those details. I mean, I mean, of course, the name is whatever you want to see it. So it's like I don't know. It's like this is his point of view, and and I think it's it's very <laughs> it's very smart as he definitely is. Um,
0: I hope to be able to read the Spanish at some point but there is there's just a sensibility with some translations that there you can feel something true almost an aura kind of coming through the this translated language's relationship to the original and that sounds probably a little hokey but it's very clear to me most times when a translation is good and this one feels uh wonderfully seamless which i know is a controversial thing to say about translation now but uh, as a reading experience oh, why
1: please please why why is that cont- i'm so interested in these controversies of translators please
0: there I, I i think if if i'm you know i'll i'll parrot a little bit of a, a one side of this controversy which says that you want to have some gaps some feelings of schisms in the translation that invites you to understand that You are both the audience and not the audience at the same time. And that there are things culturally, linguistically, and otherwise that simply cannot cross the boundary between the languages. And that a translator can make that felt in some way.
1: Like by putting notes, for example, like notes as translators.
0: Notes as translators. um, Even, I mean, more controversially, in kind of tonal strangeness that feels oh. uh, like it's translated.
1: Well that that reminds me of the translation of Eugenio Onegin by Novokov which was full of this like tonal like strangeness and and how it was absolutely um killed by by Edward <laughs> Wilson <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> this is like this isn't even english i don't know what it is <laughs> but it's not english uh, and of course, like, the was was the biggest genius, but he, like, in trying to be so, uh, so incredibly faithful, while at the same showing off that he was being so faithful by sounding, uh, like, uh yeah, it was really
0: off-putting about him. And you see this, especially in these long um, translator prefaces to more classical works of literature, where oh. the many, many, many translations of the Odyssey are now accompanied by quite long prefaces that discuss the various turns away from original intent or choosing oh. to value a kind of rhythm or, or poet, poetic nature over kind of content it's it's very interesting
1: well that's super interesting because yeah if you've already read uh, like the odyssey you know in in that translation and you want to like now experience like a completely different point of view just by by highlighting these other aspects of rhythms that's that's very cool
0: yeah
1: i don't know with contemporary people like
0: it's yeah. It's less with the contemporary writer, and I think exactly as you say, because there aren't many, many translations of a uh, contemporary work to, to, <laughs> exactly. to look through. <laughs>
1: that would be a monster. Like, that would through. be a very. <laughs> I would be worried then. <laughs>
0: So before I let you go, I know that um, my audience would love to hear some of your recommendations for newly published uh, Latinx and Hispanic literature that has been translated into English uh, or that you know that is forthcoming. And then more broadly, what have you just loved reading recently?
1: Well, I, I start by my recommendations. I really love Maria Gainza. Uh, She's a writer from Argentina and she has, I think her latest book is just published. Um, In Spanish was La Luz Negra, but I mean, there's something with light. I don't know. I don't remember the title, but um, I think she's super, super interesting. I I loved uh, that. It's like, um, it's a very porteño um, kind of language. Porteño is is uh, people from buenos aires so it's mm. very buenos aires but at the same time it has like a, like a you know like a brother you know um um chic to it because of you know if its themes that is everything it's connected you know with with the history of art and and is this art in optic argentina nerve?
0: That well, that's the...
1: her, that was her first book, okay. and what I'm I'm mentioning. I mean, there's a book that is coming out now. Okay, that is cu- like light something. I mean, La Luz Negra was okay. in Spanish. So oh, yeah, I don't, I don't, and I don't remember the publisher, unfortunately. But yeah, that should be great. And uh, well, and and then um, something that is coming out soonish, but like in two years. But it's the most, most exciting and amazing thing to come out is the. Oh, wow. Borges by Bioy Casares. So these are the diaries of Bioy Casares, kind of co written with Borges.
0: Oh my goodness. Through,
1: I mean, for like 40 years, 50 years. I don't wow. know. It's like their whole life. It's a whole life of bitchiness and awesomeness. And And oh my God, they have so much fun and they're so nasty and (laughs) they are just, uh, they're delirious. I mean, and what is really amazing, I mean, I, of course, I love Borges because I'm Argentinian and and like who cannot love Borges, Mm, But, but for, yeah, but for a while, like after like you read the whole thing, then it was kind of like really, I kind of bored with him, but like, because there's. He had so many imitators that there's like a way of the Borges sound that 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 I was just uh, I don't know like I was, uh, it's, it's like when you get drink with tequila and then you smell tequila you want to throw up really <laughs> <the> same <laughs> so I was like oh no don't, don't give me that perfect Borgesian phrase it's like my tequila no and but then when when I read uh, the Borges by Bio Casares I. I just discovered a new Borges because uh like usually you know Borges is this kind of like lofty figure, you know, with playing mm-hmm. with riddles and mirrors and labyrinths, mm-hmm. like very elegant, very <laughs> controlled. And in the Borges by Bio is is this completely different character that is like, you know, he's in love, but he's in pain. And then he's like so amazingly bitchy and, and mean, mean. <laughs> and so funny the way he, he's mean. It's just, oh, he's adorable. <laughs> and he's really, and so I was like, wow. this. And he's also like quite a warrior, like quite a political warrior because he was, uh, you know, he was considered an enemy by the government, by the Peronist government that was in rule. Like they put in jail his mother, they put in jail, you know, one of, you know, one of his friends, Victoria Campo. Uh, they both were. I mean, his her sis, his sister was in jail also at where the prostitutes were put. Okay, it's like the asylum of prostitutes. His sister and Victoria Campo. Like how can you imagine? Like a, I mean, a more ignominious regime. Well. So this was the regime and and yes, of course, he and also like they were pro-Nazis and Borges was very early on against the Nazis. Mm. Before no, I mean he was like against what was going on from very early on. And he never shied he never like recoiled. He was he was he he was feisty. He was mm. fighting these people, and and the way that you see like his meetings and how you know he's he's coping with all this makes him like so human, so uh, so full of flesh and full of the things that you know touch on us now. Like you know that we also like live in. I mean, nasty regimes and have to do something about it. So this is kind of like. Um, I don't know my absolute rediscover of Borges, and this is coming out in the translation by Valerie Miles, which is an amazing translator, and it's coming out in um, New York Review of Books. That's, oh, uh, great!
0: Yeah. Which is
1: which is amazing. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know that she has a translation. She has she has two translations coming out now, Valerie Miles. She has a cremation by Rafael Chirbes that I'm dying to read. This, this is a Spanish author, you know, he, he was gay, but quite tortured. I, I I don't know more. I have to read him. Mm-hmm. Um And also uh, she translated Milongas by Edgardo Kosarinsky, who is uh, an Argentine author that I absolutely love. And I read this book in Spanish and, well, it's kind of like, you know, the underworld of... of Of Buenos Aires it's amazing and I think these two books are in new directions or wait Chirvis is in new directions and Milongas in archipelago
0: okay oh two wonderful presses
1: yes I mean they're adorable absolutely adorable
0: (laughs) they make the most beautiful books
1: oh yes absolutely I love them
0: Well, I can't be more excited about the Borges and I look forward to being just reinvigorated by him. And I want someone's memoir to be subtitled A Whole Life of Bitchiness, which is (laughs) your wonderful term for this. And I think just a great way to end our conversation, um, which has been really wonderful and enriching and and challenging. And I want to thank you so much, Paula.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. It was really such a pleasure.
0: Well, that's all for the show today. My great thanks to the marvelous Paula ola Isarak, whose recommendations can be found at burnbybooks.com and in our show notes on the New Book Network. There are exciting new episodes coming to finish out the year including an interview with Kalani Pickhart, author of I Will Die in a Foreign Land, and a special holiday books episode featuring booksellers from three of the most important indie bookshops in the country. Until then, this has been Burned by Books, a partner of the New Books Network.